And at this time, I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles <clears throat> to the book of Acts. And um, way back in May already, we began a series on uh, the book of Acts. And that's what we'll continue with uh, this morning. And um, this morning we're going to be tying in some of the Old Testament stuff as well and sort of hopefully setting a, a good foundation for what's to come in the rest of, of the book of Acts. And um, I'd appreciate your prayers as I seem to be stumbling over my own words this morning and hopefully the sermon comes out better, uh, better than that. We're going to look at a couple of texts um, today and I just want you to note in your Bibles at the end of chapter 2, there's, a, there's this little piece on the community of God's people and the community that the Holy Spirit has created among, among this new church in Jerusalem. And then, again, at the end of chapter 4, we find a very, very similar passage. And so, at the end of that day of Pentecost, after the preaching of Peter, you find this wonderful theme of people living together in koinonia and fellowship and community. And then in chapters 3 and 4, you find uh, Peter and John healing the lame beggar. And, um, and then Peter preaching what that was all about. And then again, you find this piece of Scripture that talks about the community of God's people. And uh, that's what we're going to look at this morning. Where does that kind of community come from? But first, we're going to read a part of uh, Peter's message in Acts chapter 3. So if you look there at verse 17, I think that's page 1695 in your Bibles. Acts three seventeen. Now, brothers... I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. So Peter here is, is talking to his fellow Jews. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. And so there we read of this times of refreshing that Jesus is going to bring. And I think those times of refreshing... That's what we find it at the end of chapters 2 and 4. This is what that was all about, what Jesus provides for his people. So of chapter 4 now, beginning with verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and much grace, or in the Greek it says, the, and great grace. So just like this great power uh, was upon them, also this great grace was upon them. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Indeed, thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, after the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, there was sort of a feeling of unbounded optimism, especially among economists, as they contemplated an integrated global economy. Economic theories abounded at the time about the inevitable and invincible rise of worldwide free market capitalism and everything that it would achieve. It was believed that a new world where goods, money, and information crisscrossed the globe would essentially sweep away the old order of Cold War conflicts and undemocratic regimes. Sort of like we were on our way to utopia. And then things started to happen, right? The financial meltdown in 2008 in the United States actually threatened to tank the global financial system. And then COVID-19 pandemic hit. And um, the ceaseless drive to integrate the global economy and reduce costs well, we know what happened, right? It left health workers without face masks and medical gloves and car makers without semiconductors and sawmills without lumber. Everything began to fall apart. And then the idea that trade and shared economic interests would prevent military conflicts, well, that was trampled under the boots of Russian soldiers in Ukraine. It seems like utopia was a little farther out of reach than we thought. And friends, it's a, it's a similar notion. That's not the first time that we've thought utopia was on its way. That the kinds of texts that we read in, in Acts 2 and Acts 4, that, that we could accomplish those things on our own. In fact, you find that same kind of optimism at the very beginning of, of that Babel story in, in Genesis 11. First verse reads, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. Wow, we're on our way. The whole world had one language and a common speech. But we know how, how that turned out as well. And I, I want to look at you, look with you briefly at how that came about. What happened? What collapsed after the world had this one language and common speech and everything was looking so good? So if you think about that passage again from Genesis chapter 11, we thought about this a few weeks ago on Ascension Sunday, but I want to look a little more closely at it with you. In verse 4 of that text in particular, and it should be up on our screens, reads this way then they said and this is the the babel peoples come let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth now we're going to look at three themes briefly from from that verse the first theme there is the theme of throne the Tower of Babel, as we said a number of weeks ago, is an attempt to dethrone God, to take God off of his throne and to place ourselves on that throne. You see, the goal here wasn't just to build a tall tower, all right? This was not a morally neutral event. This is people who in their pride and arrogance wanted to build a tower 
up into the heavens. And if you recall, the heavens are where who lives? God. God is living in the heavens. And the implication in here is that the people were not satisfied with God's rule, with his authority, and so they want to push him off of his throne and put someone far more capable on that throne, and that is we ourselves. Now you might think, well, that's, a, that's kind of a bold move, but <clears throat> it's also a very familiar one, isn't it? Um, this is the story of all sin, friends. This goes back to Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember, God said to them, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but don't eat from the tree at the center of the garden. And how did they respond? But we want to eat from the tree in the center of the garden, just like little children. And God said, you're not going to like that tree. They're red delicious on that tree. They're not going to taste anything like the Macintosh on the surrounding trees. Just trust me on this. But they didn't trust him on that. You see, the serpent's words were, were ringing in their ears. You will be like God, knowing good from evil. And what he was saying really is, you'll do a better job of discerning the difference between good and evil yourselves. You'll, you can do a better job of that than God can. You know what will make you happy and content more than God knows that. That's what the Tower of Babel, friends, is all about. Now, if you don't believe me on that, if you don't trust me, if you think that's a bit of a stretch, just look at Isaiah 14 sometimes, or sometime. This is what he says there. You, Babylon, said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. That's the sin of Babel. I will make myself like the Most High. It's, a, it's the sin of trying to usurp God's throne. That's the first theme in that Genesis 11 passage. The second one I want to look at is this theme of the name. They want to make a name for themselves. That's why they are building the tower, right? It says, we want to make a name for ourselves. Now, what's such a big deal about making a name for yourself? I mean, our society is filled with making a name for yourself. If you watch any TV, every commercial is essentially about that. Making a name for ourselves. State Farm, Progressive, Coke, whatever it is. It's making a name for ourselves. But that's not our role as human beings. In Genesis 1, we read the cultural mandate, right? God creates his human beings and then he tells them to fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and all the creatures that, that move along the ground. <clears throat> and God commissions human beings to, to take over the earth, to engineer things and to build things and to um, compose things and to produce things, but it's all to be done as stewards of creation. God is the owner. God is primary. As image bearers, we are always secondary. We don't work for the praise and the glory of our own names. We work for the praise and glory of God's name. That's how it was intended to be. But at Babel, the people aren't content 
with glorifying the name of God, they want to make a name for themselves. What it is really is a declaration of independence from God. Okay? In the Bible, God says to Abraham, I will make your name great. He says the same thing to David. Both of those instances have to do with the fact that he will bring the Messiah through these men. God can make a man's name great, but our role is to make God's name great, to glorify God. Now, let's look at the second reason there in this text for why they want to build that tower. So you can go to the next one. Um, We don't want to be scattered. We don't want to be scattered. Friends, to understand this again, we have to go back all the way to Eden, to the beginning. And you have to understand that there's nothing nefarious in itself about this goal, about not wanting to be scattered. None of us wants to be scattered. I mean, these people remember Eden, these Babel people. They remember Eden. They remember that once they walked and talked with God in the garden, they laughed with Him in the cool of the day. Adam and Eve also knew a derivative of that oneness, that fellowship with God, and that was fellowship with each other, right? They knew that they were naked, and they knew no shame. There was an incredible sense of intimacy in the garden, totally vulnerable with one another. No secrets, no guilt, no shame, no hidden motives, no feelings of inadequacy, no fighting over who was going to clean the bathroom. Perfect oneness in the Garden of Eden. But those were all memories. They were all memories. And when they lost their oneness with God, they lost that oneness with each other as well. But that doesn't mean that they still didn't want it. It doesn't mean that they still didn't long to have that kind of communion again with each other. Like we said, nobody wants to be alone. Nobody wants to wake up in the middle of the night in the dark all by themselves. Nobody wants to go to movies on the weekends by themselves. Nobody wants to wait to tee off until some random threesome comes along. They didn't want to be scattered. They didn't want to be spread out over the face of the earth. They didn't want to be alone. There's nothing nefarious about that. What was sinful was their desire that they could accomplish that kind of oneness without God. That they could do it on their own. And friends, this is something we see again and again Even today in our own society where people still long communion and fellowship and sexual communion with one another, but we want to do it by setting our own rules, not by allowing God to set the rules. And so like Adam and Eve, God evicted the Babel peoples from their home. So remember those three themes, okay? From from Genesis 11, throne and name and not wanting to be scattered. Especially that last one, we still live in that reality of being scattered. 
don't we? Um, as many of you know, Jackie and I were gone on vacation <clears throat> last, uh, last week or so, and we hitched up our camper, we hopped in our truck, and, um, and we headed to Canada. And I have to confess to you that the older I get, the more I worry about things, okay? I didn't really used to worry about stuff, but I, now I worry about everything. All the things that can go wrong, I imagine them. Car troubles, right, getting lost, our camper disintegrating on the highway behind me, um, little things like that. These things present kind of a, a low-level tension, okay, in my heart and probably in, in the truck as we're driving. Sort of this low-level tension as we leave Milwaukee, as we drive through Michigan. And then we enter into Canada, and there's another level of tension that you find there. I'm not among my people anymore, right? And will these people, if I break down now, will they feel any kind of connection to me that they would actually want to help? And then we drove into Quebec. <clears throat> and now all the road signs are in French. And you pull up to the gas station, and all the gas pump prompts are in French. And I'm thinking, this is not good. Now, I'm fluid in French, as, as long as we don't go beyond bonjour. So, so you, can, you can tell that the tension is sort of ramping up, right? What if I break down and now nobody speaks English? What if I pay for a thousand liters of gas at the gas pump without knowing it? Um, and you feel this separation, right? This separation that you read about in Babel that comes with the confusion of languages. That's a very real thing, that language thing and the separation that comes from it. But it's also a metaphor, isn't it? It's a metaphor. It spells separation. And we've been, we've been trying to overcome that separation among us as human beings for ages, for centuries. We keep trying to build another tower that's going to provide an answer to that separation, a fix for that separation, to keep us from being scattered. And, and it hasn't worked. Whatever it is, whether it's, you know, the economy or, or race and culture or if it's affinities, you know, we all join the golf club together or the Sierra Club or whatever it is, we think it's blood. Blood's going to be the answer. Family's going to be the answer. That's going to be the answer to give me this community that I've always longed for. But it just doesn't work, right? Wars still rage on. We can't create peace. Tomorrow morning, we're going to hear how many people were shot in Milwaukee and how many of them died. And we can't seem to stop it. Our political ideologies color us enemies, right? And when I drive through Montreal, I want all the road signs to be in English, but I still can't understand why my hard-earned taxes should pay for, you know, textbooks to be printed in Spanish so that little children can, can learn in school. It's Father's Day, and we have this idea that everything is right in families and in the world, but even as we speak today, there are bicyclists riding across America trying to encourage more fathers to actually be dads. The separation just seems to be unstoppable. 
We don't know how to fix it. We still feel the effects of being dispersed over the face of the earth. But at the same time, we also remember Eden, don't we? There remains within us this deep, deep desire not to be scattered. I think that's one of the reasons we love to read, we love so much to read these texts from Acts 2 and Acts 4. Because here we find a community that we long for. It's true community. There's, there's real oneness here, post-Babel. Right? People who care for each other. People who make sure that they all have what they need. Just like in Eden. It's Eden again. But sometimes I think we're still deceived about how that type of community comes about. In other words, there's still a lot of Babel in us. We think that we can still do community, we can still find that community, create that kind of community without God. Without God being on his throne. Or maybe just with a little bit of God here and there, we can do it. But friends, that's not going to happen. And yet, there is still good news. God is still at work, right? God is still at work. Think, uh, think back again to Babel. Babel was about the removal of God from his throne. What happens in Acts chapter 1? That's what we talked about a few weeks ago. What happens in Acts chapter 1? Well, Jesus ascends into heaven. Jesus ascends and takes his rightful throne. Just like Aragorn in the, in the Lord of the Rings, right? Finally, the right king sits on the throne that he's supposed to be sitting on. In the same way, Jesus finally sits on the throne over all the heavens, or in all the heavens, his throne over all the nations of the world. Jesus takes his throne again. His rule and his authority is expressed over all the world. And then God exalts his name. His name. Um, I think Young Kwong mentioned this a few weeks ago when he preached on chapters 3 and 4. These, these texts are simply littered with the name of Jesus Christ. Read through it sometime. The name of Jesus keeps getting mentioned. The name of Jesus. Peter preaches. He says, you killed Jesus, but God raised him up and exalted him into the heavens. And now it's by the name of Jesus and only his name that you can be saved. When they heal the beggar, it's in the name of Jesus that he is healed. The name of Jesus keeps coming up again and again and again. The only name that can save, the only name that can heal, the only name that can bring the wholeness that we desire. What's the big deal with the name? Allow me to take you back to the Old Testament just one more time. When God began his great first work of salvation, right? What did he do? He brought his people out of Egypt. They were out there in the desert. And then he had to get them into the promised land. <clears throat> there was something that the Bible talks about at that time called the reproach of Egypt. The reproach of Egypt. And what that was is it was brought up by Pharaoh in the first first place it's echoed by Moses and basically what Pharaoh said is Yahweh is not enough of a God 
to get you through the desert and into your own land where he can reign over you as king. And that's what Moses refers to after the incident with the golden calf, right? He says to God, he prays to God, he says, Lord, if you destroy these people, Egypt and all of the nations are going to laugh and they're going to say, see, God couldn't do it. Yahweh could not do it. He's not enough of a king to bring his people into the promised land. And then in Joshua 5, okay, after God does bring them into the land, they cross the Jordan. They're all circumcised and constituted as God's very own people, right? And there we read, and God rolled away the reproach of Egypt. He proved himself that he could do it. Friends, that's what's going on here in Acts chapters 2 and 4. The name of Jesus, the reproach against him is rolled away. Think about the beating that the name of Jesus took during his life, during his ministry, and especially on the cross. People mocked him and insulted him and laughed at him. And what happened? They killed him, and God raised him up and exalted him to the heavens, and the reproach against the name of Jesus was rolled away. That's what happens here in the book of, of Acts. God fills, or Jesus pours out his spirit on his people. He constitutes them as his new community. And they begin to live in this world, in this land, in this place, in shalom. With Jesus as their king, ruling over them. That's where they find that kind of community and fellowship that they had in Eden. That's where it all happens again. And Jesus proves his name is great. The reproach of Egypt is rolled away. What we have here, friends, in Acts 2 and 4 is a picture of life that proves that Jesus really is the Son of God. That Jesus really does occupy His throne in heaven. That Jesus really can provide the shalom that each and every one of us longs for. These are the times of refreshing that Jesus says He would bring. Look with me for a moment at Acts 4 again, verse 33. I mentioned this earlier. With great power, it says, the apostles continued to testify. We talked about this on Pentecost. When Jesus went up to his throne, he filled or he sent his Holy Spirit, and his Spirit gives people great power to witness to his name. It's the undoing of Babel. Jesus now gives great power to his witnesses to go out to all the, all the faces of the world, the whole face of the world, and proclaim his gospel. He reaches out to all peoples and he begins to gather them in. 
Okay? The power of the word, the power of witness. That verse goes on. They testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. As God, or as Jesus pulls his people in and brings them into community again, he gives them a great grace. The Holy Spirit fills them with a great grace to live in community, to live in koinonia. What is koinonia exactly? Koinonia is another word for fellowship, okay? But it's bigger than that. It's hard to explain. Koinonia is not ham on buns. That might be the start of it, okay? But koinonia is more like a phone call in the middle of the night. Esther is in labor, and we need you to come over and and watch our kids, take care of our kids, sit with our kids while we run to the hospital. It's a little closer to koinonia. Um, Koinonia is not bringing um, a box of food over to a single mom and setting it on the porch or a box of clothes. Koinonia is more like bringing that box over and ringing the doorbell and engaging and starting in a conversation. It's sitting and talking and getting a feel for the stress that might be present in that person's life. It's, it's then following up with daily texts and, and more than daily prayers. And, and then it's widening the boundaries of your own family and actually inviting people in. That's koinonia. Koinonia is not, is not simply professing that, that theologically, you know, sexual sins are on the same level as greed and anger and, and pride and slander. No, koinonia is, is, is something more. It, it's, it's having the guts in your life group to confess to your own struggle with pride and greed and anger and slander and to grieve over those things to such an extent that the friends in your group now feel safe enough to confess their own perhaps sexual sins. That's more like koinonia. Koinonia is a place, a church where where celibate singles are held in such high honor that their friends actually run to them and, and ask, how can I find the same strength to overcome my greed and my arrogance and my lusts? Koinonia, friends, you see, requires a great grace. A great grace. Here's the point, friends. Okay? One language or your affinities with the people around you that you both like bowling or your blood. There's no great power 
And there's no great grace in those things. They can't provide the shalom, the wholeness that Jesus can. But the good news is, there is one who is on the throne who can provide you with those things. And we are called to put our faith in his great name that he can indeed do these things, that he can provide these things for us as his people. And so we don't despair even when denominations and congregations begin to divide, we don't despair. Rather, we go to that name who is capable, fully capable of bringing us together, uniting us in love. We go to him again and again and we say, Jesus, have we, have we on, have we, are you on the throne of our lives? Let's put it that way. Are you on the throne of my life? Are you on the throne of my neighbor's life? Are you on the throne of the lives of everyone in our congregation? And do we have that faith that Jesus can really provide the community that we desire and want with all of our hearts? Here's the table. That's the message. Jesus can he has, and he will, and he invites us to eat. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we trust that you can indeed make us one, that you can unite us together, that you can bring us shalom you can give us a taste of Eden. Increase our faith, O oh Lord. Every time we come to this table together, increase our faith that you are fully capable. And so by the power of your Holy Spirit, we bow before you as our King. And we acknowledge that you have authority over our lives. Help us to live the way you have taught us to live. Lord, encourage us at this table again this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.